0: Today's sermon text is Romans 1, 1 through 8, as well as verses 15 and 16. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you, also who are in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is God's word.
1: Amen, yes, you can have a seat. I want to invite you, if you haven't already, to take out a copy of God's word. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, and we will be situated... Right in Romans one, I actually want to go ahead and encourage you from the front end. As I preach this sermon, there are a lot of themes that will come up that are actually explicitly covered and expanded upon in Romans one through eleven. So I actually would love to encourage you if you if you have a Bible reading plan, maybe scrap it for this week. I would encourage you to read Romans one through eleven this week. You could you could read tomorrow. Starting tomorrow, you could start by reading Romans one and two together. Tuesday, you could read chapters 3 through 5. Wednesday, you could read uh, chapters 6 and 7, and all of these are thematically organized pretty well. Thursday, you could uh, just spend some time in Romans 8, and then on Friday, you could finish it out by reading Romans 9 through 11. I I would really encourage you to to read all of this. We are in the middle of a four-week sermon series covering the foundations of a church, any church's vision and mission. Last week, we saw that what a church wants to become and what a church should do are linked and must be built on the pillars of the Great Commission and the Great Commandment. Now, here's what we're going to do through the rest of this series over the next three weeks. Over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack what we need to be a church that makes disciples who love God and others. Um... What we're going to do is we're going to see that if we want to become like Jesus, as, as those who, who are lovers of both God and people, in order for us to see this overarching big-picture vision come to pass, we need three ingredients. We need gospel doctrine, we need gospel culture, and we need gospel mission. And this morning, we are going to be looking at gospel doctrine. We will know that we are making disciples— in particular types of disciples who love God and who love others, when we see gospel doctrine, gospel culture, and gospel mission thriving in our church. And we're going to begin this morning with doctrine, and here's what I mean by that. Um, I, I actually looked it up, and I was looking up resources. Um, and. I'm heavily reliant upon Ray Ortland's green book, The Gospel, Um, especially next week's sermon. He he opened my eyes for the first time to seeing the importance of the culture of a church. If you don't have a green book uh, that we actually give out to all first-time guests, if you're visiting with us for the first time and you do not have a green book in your hands, please... As you leave, grab a green book. Um, but I was looking up—I was looking up different resources on this, and I was like, okay, gospel doctrine. This phrase that I've heard Ortland use and others use. I, I looked up resources on it, and I would just—unless uh, you just want to laugh—you can Google gospel doctrine, and all that comes up is stuff from Mormonism. So. Um, I promise you, um, <laughs> as we're talking about like big picture vision mission of the church, I'm not shifting us away from Christianity into Mormonism. Um, it's, it's really interesting and kind of startling. And I was like, maybe I should just change the phrasing on that. And I stressed out over it, and I was like, I don't have time. I don't, I'm not creative enough. We're just going to stick with it. Um, what I mean by gospel doctrine is the biblical reality, the biblical truth and the implications of the gospel. Now, this may seem like an obvious point to make, unworthy of an entire sermon, and I actually talked a lot about the gospel last week, and we talk about the gospel every single week, so this may feel like a yawn, and it's like, well, I can definitely check out, I've heard this before. Um, It feels like a cheap Sunday school answer to say that we need the gospel to become who we're meant to be as a church. It's like, well, duh, of course we do. You can just say that, and we don't have to uh, spend significant time thinking about it. Um, you know, when I was in fifth grade in Sunday school, uh, we had a wonderful Sunday school teacher, but there was this kid who was a friend of mine, his name was Anthony, and Anthony, any time a question was asked, and you know, if you've ever taught Sunday school before with kids, you know what this is like. You ask a question, and there's just dead silence, just dead silence in the room. And then, you know, the teacher usually will remark on the silence and then everybody, you know, everybody chuckles, everybody laughs about it. And then there's just more silence. And then the teacher just gives the answer. Anthony, every single time there was silence, he would always answer with one of three words. He would either say God, Jesus, or the Bible. Every time every time and you know a lot of times that he did that it actually did the trick you know which probably says more about the the studies that we were doing or the questions that were being asked than it did anthony but the past is the past i've moved on from that time um but like anthony we we are prone and like the sunday school teachers that, that i had we are prone to believe that the gospel is just kid stuff It's just just a Sunday school answer that we give. Once we know it, we're good, and we can move on to bigger and better things. We believe it's an elementary doctrine, an elementary truth, and we teach it to our children, and we teach it to new believers, but eventually we grow out of it, and we move on to to more practical aspects of the Christian life. But I want you to notice something here. In the book of Romans, which which is Paul's theological masterpiece, I mean, it is the book you turn to to learn the glorious aspects of the gospel, the most glorious book ever written on the gospel. If you don't know what the gospel is, read the book of Romans and you'll come away with a pretty clear understanding. And as he begins this glorious book in the first chapter, he writes in verse 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He says, I'm so eager. I haven't been there yet. I'm so eager to come to you and preach the gospel to you. And he's so eager here to preach the gospel to his audience, but who is his audience? Who is Paul writing to? That's why we read even the greeting in verses 7 and 8. Turn to look at verses 7 and 8. He tells us who he's writing to. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is eager to preach the gospel to Christians. He is eager to come to Rome to preach the gospel to those who already believe it. And it's because he knows that the gospel is for Christians too. We need to just, right out of the gate, recognize that we will never outgrow our need to hear the gospel. We will never graduate beyond the gospel, leaving it behind for deeper, more important, more practical doctrines. The gospel is our spiritual breath. It is the power to become who we are meant to be. And apart from knowing the gospel and understanding its implications on our lives, we can never become the church God has called us to be. It's impossible. So if our general, big picture vision is to become a church that makes disciples who love God and who love other people, we have to know the gospel. We have to be committed to gospel doctrine. And this leads to a question which we'll answer today. How does knowing the gospel help us become a community of disciples marked by love for God and other people? And we're going to answer it um, in two parts by looking at Romans 1. First, it's because of the gospel's nature. And second, it's because of the gospel's power. So we're going to look at the gospel's nature this morning and then close with the gospel's power the gospel's nature. Look with me in Romans 1, verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now listen to this. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ the gospel centers on the person and work of Jesus a man who is also God who who walked the earth About 2,000 years ago. The gospel is all about his life, his death, and his resurrection. And these were historical events that happened in specific places and at specific times. You see, as Paul is unpacking the gospel, he centers it on the person and work of Jesus. Who he is and what he did. But but as we know, the sun was rising and falling long before Jesus walked out of the tomb. So so what led us here? What what brought us to Romans 1? You see, throughout the Bible, there's a story. There's a story of the Bible, and there's really a story of the world. And it really has four parts to it. And and people have have labeled them in different ways. But but we could just say that the four parts of the story of the world or the story of the Bible uh, are creation, fall, redemption, You see, in the beginning, in the beginning, how we got here, God created a perfect world. A world in which his people would perfectly love him and would perfectly love one another. A world in which they would all live in perfect peace with each other. And that these people would even rule over and care for this creation. But then, we see early on in the Bible, there's something that we call the fall. Sin entered the world. And when sin entered the world, division and selfishness and corruption followed. Barriers were were built, walls were built between God and man and between people. And people were banished from God's perfect place. And, And now God's perfect world is stained with sin and corruption. But then there's a third part to the story, and we call it redemption. God was not finished with his world or his people. He planned from the very beginning to rescue not only mankind, but, to, but, it's, but the entire created order. He planned to redeem and restore all things, people included, but also all of the cosmos. And he, he sets out on a renewal project, and we see that happening throughout the Old Testament. And it climaxes as we turn the page from the Old to the New Testament, and we see the arrival of Jesus. It is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that what was lost in the beginning at the fall is recovered and renewed. And then we find ourselves between redemption and consummation, but one day in the future, this this story will be consummated. One day in the future, Jesus is going to come back. And on that day, he will finally and forever set all things right. And we will once again live in the presence of our God and with one another in perfect love, in perfect peace, in a perfect world. You see, but the the climax of this story, the story of the world, the story of history, the story of the Bible, the climax is the gospel. The restoration of the whole world, you included, can only happen because of the gospel. So yes, we need the gospel's doctrine If we are going to become what we were always meant to be and if that's true then it's even more important that we know what the gospel is what is the gospel i hope you hear me ask that question frequently because it's a question we need to answer frequently and i want to encourage you now especially if you have something to write with or if you have your phone your notes out would you would you mind writing an answer to that what's what's the answer that you would give what is the gospel And, and if you're blanking that's okay. Uh, first of all, we're not going to take these up at the end. It's not going to be your exit slip or anything like that. Um, but maybe consider, you know, the elements or the ingredients that you would need for, for the gospel. So if you were going to write out what the gospel is, what, what do you need? What are some elements? What, what would you say? You know, maybe, maybe sin has to be included. God, decent one. You know, now we're getting back to Anthony. Um, um, God, sin, Bible. Um, but no, God, Jesus, Death, cross, resurrection, forgiveness, sins, I, I, you know, think about those elements as you're, as you're writing this out. And the last thing that I want to do, by the way, is I'm about to, and if you have notes, we have definitions there. The last thing that I want to do is to give you a definition of the gospel that you just commit to memory. That's, that's not the point here. I want to be as clear as I can about what the gospel is, but I want you to enter into a practice of writing a biblically faithful definition of the gospel. You could, write, you could write a definition of the gospel that's a page long. You could do it in a paragraph. You could do it in a sentence. But you need to be able to do this. So I would encourage you, as you're writing down some things now, maybe flesh that out this week. What is the gospel? Write your answer to it. Here's a simple definition. The gospel is the good news... That Jesus Christ died for our sins as our substitute and was raised from the dead as our king. And I have an expanded definition here for you. The gospel is the good news that God rescues his people and will restore his created order from sin through the perfect life, atoning death, and bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what I want to do, though. I actually want to unpack the simplest aspects of the gospel— that can actually open the door to the clearest understanding of the gospel. I want to look at it in three parts. First, the gospel is news. Second, the gospel is good news. And third, the gospel is good news to us. Each of these are are crucial in understanding the gospel. So let's unpack them real quick. First, the gospel is news. The gospel is news. It's historical. It's not fantastical. It's not something that was made up. It's not, it's not a really cool theology that, that philosophers and theologians got together back in the day, and they, just, they, they contrived and, and put together um, and thought, you know, this is going to be something good. We can start a new religion based on this. Um, this, this isn't, you know, a dream that someone had, and, and they just wrote everything down. No, this is grounded in history. The gospel is an announcement of something that happened in history. This is not, this is not just Spirituality. The story of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection is historical nonfiction. Jesus really was born in history to a young girl, a virgin named Mary. He really did live a sinless life, and the gospels tell us a lot of the things that he did in his life. He really did die on a cross. He, very few um, credible people, if any, debate that. He really did die on a cross. And he really did. He really did rise from the dead. There were were witnesses to this. It happened in history. So before you even start trying to make sense of it, what does it mean? You have to at minimum recognize this stuff really happened. And the gospel that we believe, before it is anything else, it is news. Now, here's what else that means it's not just historical. The gospel is an announcement, it's not advice. This is where I always got confused as a kid. Um, because, you know, I, I, again, I told you, I struggle with wanting, wanting to please people. And, and sometimes I can be crushed when I, when I know I have failed people. And so I was always the kid that, you know, new answers in my head would not raise my hand to answer on the off chance I could be wrong. You know, it's just, it was really unhealthy. Um, I, I wanted to know, okay, there's this God who's really big and he's really powerful and he's really holy and that makes sense to me. What do I need to do to not be on his bad side? What do I need to do to be on his good side? And so when I would hear things about Jesus, and, and I preferred to hear things like, "Well, here's what you got to do every single week, every single week, every day you need to read your Bible, you need to pray, and then you're going to be closer and closer and closer to God. And whenever someone would actually share the gospel with me, it kind of fell flat, you know, because I'm like, well, what do I do, though? You know, it's like, well, here, Jesus did it all. You know, he, he paid it all. He, he did everything that's necessary. Okay, yeah, but what do I do? What do I do? And it, it just, it struck me. But the gospel, it's very important to, to see this. It is not spiritual advice. It's, it's not religious advice. It's an announcement of something that has happened totally outside your control. It's, it's an announcement of something that has happened totally without your consideration or your deliberation. I mean, it, it does kind of make me think of, of situations in history and some things we're seeing right now with, with the Taliban, you know, gaining power in Afghanistan. They did not go door to door and ask the people's advice on, hey, you guys think we should be in power? What do you think? They didn't send out a poll. They took power. And once they took power, guess how the people found out? It was announced. Hey, we're in control now. We're in charge. Now, Jesus is not like the Taliban, but but in the same way that they did take power, Jesus, through his death and his resurrection, he is the resurrected and the and the ascended reigning king of the universe the gospel is the announcement of that your sins are forgiven through the shed blood of jesus it is done it is it has happened here's the news when we go and tell people the story of the gospel we're not giving them spiritual advice we are announcing to them what has happened outside of their control apart from their advice the gospel is not advice for how you should live it is not law demanding that we pay for all the wrong that we have done the gospel is not empty encouragement that everything is going to be okay in the end the gospel is not a recommendation for how we can fix the problems in our lives the gospel is not even primarily a set of beliefs to adhere to in order to be accepted by god it's an announcement of something god has done in history It is the news that God has intervened to set right all that we have broken and to reconcile us to himself. The kingdom of God has come through what Jesus has done. And the gospel, before it is anything else, is an announcement of that news. It's a welcome to wayward sinners like us. It's a pronouncement, a declaration of victory that Jesus has done everything that is necessary to rescue and restore sinners and all of creation. It's news. But it's not just news. Because in Afghanistan, the news is bad. It's good news. The gospel is good news. It's not automatically good news that Jesus is now king. Because if if he's a bad king, that's bad news. But the gospel isn't bad news. And it's not neutral news. It is good news because of who the king is and what he has come to do. Jesus took a throne through a cross and an empty tomb. And through this process, he defeated both sin and death, rescuing us from both. So the gospel is good news because it brings news of salvation and rescue from sin. Here at Trace, we do not believe that we must or can atone for our sins. Through church attendance or Bible knowledge or service in the community. We believe that we have been cut off from heaven, from God because of our sin. And we believe that there isn't a single thing that we can do on our own to remedy this problem. We just aren't enough. But Jesus is enough because He died in our place and because He bore the weight of sin and shame. He is enough. To reconcile us to God. He is enough for all of our past, present, and future sins to be forgiven. He is enough to give us the gritty audacity to move forward in freedom from our past sins without being weighed down by them. And he is enough to give us a glorious future, one that we could never create for ourselves. But the gospel is good news because it is also the news of salvation and rescue from death. Listen, Jesus rose from the dead as a king. And as the king, the one who has all authority on heaven and on earth, his regime is to renew all things. He reigns over all things on heaven and on earth and under the earth. Through his resurrection, Jesus defeated death so that everyone who believes in him is rescued from the sting of death. Because Jesus is alive, death does not have the last word on our lives nor can it really ultimately touch us. Future resurrection awaits us. Our future is so bright, no matter how dark our days are now, because Jesus is alive, and he is the king. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. The gospel is good news, but the gospel is not just news. It's not just good news, because that would be great if it was good news, but what if it's not good news to you the gospel is also good news to us how do we benefit from the gospel how does the gospel become good news not just generally but specifically to me to you well it comes as a gift of grace that we receive by faith again it's an announcement it's not advice so the Lord is not just saying hey I've done my part now it's it's your turn to do your part I have, I have sent my son, and he has died for your sins. Now it's your turn to be faithful. And if you are faithful, then you'll be in. And if you're not, you will, you will not. You will be cast out. No, that's not, that's not the news. It's a gift. What do you do with a gift? Not, not a reward, but a gift. You receive it. You receive it by faith. John tells us in, in John chapter 1, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He goes on to say, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. We receive all the fullness of Jesus from Jesus as a gift by our faith in him. So we believe that the gospel is for everyone. The kingdom is wide open. It's a gift, it's not a reward. It's to be received, it's not to be earned. Now, here's what we see as a result of what the gospel is, its nature. The gospel tells us that our efforts, our contributions to salvation are empty and useless. The gospel meets us with both startling and comforting news. It meets us with the startling news that we are not enough, and then it meets us with the comforting news that Jesus is enough. This is the nature of the gospel. Okay, but something else we need to see here is the gospel's power. So look down with me to verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Jesus' death and resurrection. Actually, accomplish something and it accomplishes something that we take part in the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes if you believe in Jesus you possess the power of God in the gospel so gospel doctrine is power for our church to make disciples who love God and others so we can't do it in any other way and here's how it works it works itself out in three ways First, we can become people who love God because the gospel has changed the way that we relate to God. That's, that's why we can love God now. Because the gospel, the work of Jesus on our behalf, has changed our status before God, has changed our relationship to God. We were once enemies of God. But because of the gospel, <laughs> we are now children of God. That's a new relationship. We, we once were. Stood before God with a guilty sentence pronounced over us Now through the gospel Because Jesus has taken our guilt and gifted us his righteousness We stand before God justified We were once alienated from God But through the gospel we now have peace with God Because of the gospel There is now, we'll see in Romans 8 No condemnation awaiting those who believe in Jesus Judgment from God has been dealt with the justice of God has been satisfied. So we now relate to God as a child does to his or her father. He is our shepherd. He is our king. And we have received his love. And because of this new relationship with him, now we are not strangers, we are not far off, we are not enemies shaking our fists at him. Now we are children who have been given the capacity to reciprocate his love. See, we are not defined by our sins. We are not defined by our status, and we are not defined by our success (laughs) because we stand in the gospel of God's free grace. We are defined by what Jesus has done for us. We are children of God because of what Jesus has done. This is power. This is power to grow in our love For God, every single week through our worship, we are met with more words from the Lord. And and we receive more and more love from God. And so we have the capacity every single week because of the gospel to love him back. Something else we see, though, we can not only become people who love God, we can become people who love other people because we believe that the gospel has changed the way we relate to other people. So it hasn't just changed the way we relate to God, the gospel has changed the way that we relate to others. You see, it's, an op- it's a new operating system for us. It changes things about us. The way that we relate to God, the way that we relate to other people, by the power of God and the gospel, we now belong to one another in a new way. When you come to faith in Jesus, you don't just gain a father, you gain a family. You gain a place to belong. And we now relate to one another on the basis of the way that God relates to us. So the gospel, gospel doctrine, is power for church unity. It is the basis of our church community. We are welcomed into God's presence, so we welcome one another. We have unity with God, so we have unity with one another. The gospel is power for neighbor love. We we see our neighbors now as image bearers deserving of our love no one is unworthy no one is less than because the gospel is true everyone is a candidate for salvation so gospel doctrine teaches us that each person in our lives is valuable regardless of how they treat us regardless of how they treat others regardless of what's happening in their lives gospel doctrine teaches us this it teaches us that fellow believers are even more precious It places new expectations on how we do life together as a church, and it gives us the power that we need to live it out. So we can become people who love other people because of the way the gospel reorients our hearts toward them. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to his people. And if you don't belong to Jesus, his people owe you his love and our love. See, the gospel has shattered any barriers that would otherwise keep us apart. All the reasons that we could give, church, all the reasons that we could give to not love another person have been swept away by the blood of Jesus. And we have no defense. When the Lord commands us to love others, we have no defense. What can we say after we've received such love from him in the gospel? So because the gospel is true through gospel doctrine, we can become people who love others. But one more thing, and this is so important. We can become, emphasis on become, we can become people who love God and others because the gospel has changed the way we relate to ourselves. How can we change? How can you, by nature, by nature, there are people in your lives that you don't love right? Don't, don't answer that. (laughs) But, but there are. There, there are people in your lives that, that are difficult to love, and if you're like, I don't think so, then you're probably the difficult person, you know, in your friend group that, you know, you're the difficult person to love. Um, But it's, it's difficult, and we, we all need to change. And, And there are times where we don't love people in the way that we should. And, but what do we do if, if we recognize that? How can we change? How can we ever actually fulfill this vision where our church it's obvious. You see it. You see it in this place. There's love. There's love between people who it's like, "Man, I can't believe those two actually hang out. They have nothing in common, but they love each other and they serve each other." How, how can we see that? How can we see a culture of service? How can we see a culture of outreach? How can we see a culture of of care actually start to thrive here among us? We have to change. Well, how can we change? Gospel doctrine see, the gospel changes the way that we relate to ourselves and think of ourselves we can actually become new and better people not by working really hard but because through the death and resurrection of Jesus we have been given new life when Jesus died and rose again, you see this in Romans chapter 6 he paved the way for our own kind of inner death and resurrection Dane Ortland puts it this way, I think this quotes in your notes Christ was sent not to mend wounded people or wake sleepy people or advise confused people or inspire bored people or spur on lazy people or educate ignorant people, but to raise dead people. The good news of the gospel is for all of us. No matter how clean or dirty our past may be, the gospel changes and cleanses those of us who are dreadfully bad and those of us who are fraudulently good. And God doesn't meet us halfway. He creates order out of chaos. He brings life out of death. He resurrects our hearts from the ashes of death, and he makes something brand new. The gospel is power for change. As Paul would put it, it is the power of God for salvation, for everyone who believes. Not only did God rescue us decisively from death, And decisively from the power of sin, he continues to meet us every day with resurrecting, life-giving, life-changing grace. Through our reception of the gospel by faith, we actually are invited into a story of change. A story of a holy God who not only rescues people, but restores them and makes them new. So here's what we believe here. We believe that because Jesus died and rose again, we can actually, really, finally change. And the gospel becomes our life's new operating system. The gospel does this this powerful work of changing our relationships to God, to others, and to ourselves. And this empowers us to become new and better people who live lives of love for God and others. Um, There's an Australian theologian, uh, his name is Michael Byrd. And I don't agree with, you know, a lot that Michael Byrd says, but he says this different than anybody I've ever read, and I absolutely love it. Here's how he refers to the church. He refers to the church as the community of the gospelized. The community of the gospelized. If you'd heard that before, then tell me who you read it from. I mean, it's just, it's so interesting. The gospelized. Now he says, he defines it, being gospelized means to become what the gospel intends you to be. To become what the gospel intends you to be. Which that, that gives us a new picture. The gospel isn't something that just happens outside of us and then there's this justification status and now God views us in a particular way and we have salvation and forgiveness and we're, we're all set, all is good for the future. This, this idea of being gospelized means that the gospel is constantly, continuously changing us into who God really wants us to be. So since the gospel has made you a son or a daughter of God, then live like a son or daughter of God. Since the gospel has granted you forgiveness from God, then live free from guilt and be ready to extend forgiveness to others. Since the gospel has opened you to God's love, then reciprocate his love back to him and replicate his love among others. Become what the gospel intends you to be. This is why gospel doctrine is so important for our church. If we're going to become a church that makes disciples of Jesus who love God and love others, then we have to remain committed to gospel doctrine. We have to continue confessing the gospel, believing the gospel, teaching the gospel. The day that we stop teaching the gospel, please fire us and hire someone who will give you the gospel. It is power. The truth and the reality of the gospel has to remain at the center of the church, any church, and her vision and her mission and her ministries. We become what God intends us to be by being committed to gospel doctrine, and we do that in three ways. The gospel has to remain our message. It has to. The gospel has to remain our model it, it's, it's our guide. It's our blueprint for, for the things that we do in the church. And then finally, the gospel has to remain our motivation. And this is where we usually miss it. Why do you love other people? Or why should you? Because God has first loved you. Why do we forgive others? Because God has first forgiven you. Why do we care about building community? Well, because God, through the gospel, has invited us into community with Him. And why do we care about, about missions and evangelism and caring for the poor? because through the the gospel, Jesus came for us. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So gospel doctrine is the central doctrine of our church. When the gospel is the central thing, it changes everything. It gives power and purpose to our ethics, our holiness, our mercy, our justice, our kindness, our goodness. It gives new power and purpose to the way that we fulfill our responsibilities at work and our responsibilities at home. It changes the way that we treat one another. It changes how we choose to spend our time and our resources. It gives new motivation for our ministries and for our worship. So let's remain committed to the gospel. Not for the sake of pride in being right. We're not becoming and continuing to be a church that is focused on the gospel so that we can look out and judge other churches and say, oh well, we're more gospel centered than they are. We're focused on the right thing. Look at look at what they're focused on. No, that's not the point. The point is not to increase your own pride in the fact that well we have got it right. The point in remaining committed to the gospel is for the sake of love for God and love for other people. It's for the sake of bringing other people into this glory of grace. The gospel is the only path on which we can become who we were created to be. So let's stay on it. Let's not veer.